Well, we've we've been looking at a portion of Scripture in Mark that is very arresting. If you look in the end of chapter 4, of course, we have the story of Jesus facing the storm. He was asleep in the back of the boat and the disciples woke him up and he said, quiet, be still, and the whole storm stopped. And last week we looked at Jesus crossing the lake with the disciples and going to the other side where they found Jesus' first Gentile convert, crazy man with no clothes on, screaming at the top of his lungs. The disciples thought they were going to recruit a little bit better crowd than that and uh, got surprised like we do sometimes today. And we find that he was demon-possessed, and Jesus, of course, took total control of the demons and the demonic world. Now we come to two stories today, beginning with Mark 5:21 through the end of the chapter, verse 43. We find two, two stories interwoven, and this is kind of a Mark sandwich. Uh, you'll find this again later on in chapter 11, for example, when he deals with the fig tree. You get two stories interwoven, and they play off of each other in a certain way. Uh, we'll be looking at a 12-year-old girl who is dying and a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. The commonality of 12 is there, but even more importantly, the commonality of, of seeking Jesus through faith. But the more important common thing is that we're going to see Jesus' power displayed. This is sort of Jesus' power grid, if you will. When you go from the end of four all the way through five, we're seeing how he deals with the threats to us from uh, from the weather, uh, from the demonic world, uh, from our own health, and from our uh, from death itself. Uh, so we're in Jesus' power grid, showing us who He is, we, because uh, being posed against Him are all the the most powerful things we could think of in this world, and we see Jesus dealing with them. So let's pick up the story with verse 21 and see these two stories as they weave together, and we're going to learn some very important things about Jesus and about his power and maybe also learn some things about our weakness and the significance of our weakness. It is a a significant thing. Let's look at verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, that would be back now on the west side of the lake, on the Jewish side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue's ru- or synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet 
and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Okay, first of all, I want us to notice in these first six verses, or five verses, that our weakness brings us to Jesus. A large crowd had gathered around him. This crowd had come to be taught, and this crowd was also a very needy crowd. They always were. Why? Because it is our very weakness that brings us to Jesus. We don't like being weak. I doubt there's anybody in this room full of men who likes to be weak. And when we are weak, the last thing we like is for somebody else to find out about it. We do all kinds of things to cover our weaknesses. Sometimes if a salesman wants to take you out to dinner, you don't want your wife to go because she'll reveal some weakness in your life. And that's, of course, why the salesman wants to go out to dinner with you. We all guard and protect ourselves because we know that if you, if you reveal a weakness, somebody's going to exploit it. And men are those who conquer and take over things and compete, and we don't want to have anyone take advantage of us, and so we reveal our weaknesses. We're also very proud, and we like to present ourselves as in charge, in control, got it together. Nobody likes to have their weaknesses exposed. Furthermore, we know that if we're wise, we will not expose or exploit the weaknesses of people with whom we're working. What was a, a good definition of, of a, an effective manager or leader? Effective manager is one who exploits the strengths or uses the strengths of all the people working with him and covers their weaknesses, or as one has said, makes their weaknesses irrelevant. So when you're managing a group of people, you get them all positioned and encouraged and coached and trained so that their weaknesses don't make any difference. And you start with yourself. So hopefully by the, about the time you're an old man like me, you, you figured out where you're supposed to be in life and you, you've gotten to a place in life where your weaknesses are, are covered. And that's true with myself. I, I love what I do. My weaknesses don't get exploited. I mean, you, you may think they're being exploited. You say, Wilson, I know a lot of your weaknesses. I mean, when I'm sitting there about 10 after 12, I know one of your weaknesses. You know, on Sunday morning, you don't know when Sunday morning became Sunday afternoon, you know. 
So we've all got weaknesses, but we think we've covered our weaknesses. Uh, and so you, you, that's what you're trying to do that all the time, to exploit your own strengths, make your weaknesses irrelevant, and to do that for other people. So we don't like weaknesses. But what we see over and over again in the text, and this, these texts in particular, is that our weaknesses are there in a certain way to bring us to Jesus. I found some weaknesses last night, right around midnight. My old alarm system in my house kept going like that, you know, just uh, not on the outside, but on the inside of the house, all the stations, you know, so I was like, something's wrong. I've been through this before. You know, I've lived in this house 12 years. So I go over and I remember where the box is. You know, it's in Lizzie's bedroom closet and I'm stumbling around, you know, because it's waking me up in the middle of the night and I. I find the reset button. You know, push that. It's a kind of a, you have to push it hard. You know, push that reset button and it stops. So I had a few things to say, but I didn't say anything, Lord. I wasn't talking to you, Lord. I just was, had a few things to say. So I go back to my bed and I get in bed and I'm kind of right in that twilight zone, you know, it's kind of, you're kind of in, kind of out and you're feeling real good. It's like drugs are just firing through your body. You're just kind of, you know, thing goes off again, you know, so I get up and I stump my toe on the, on a suitcase that hadn't been put away, you know, on the floor. And, and I stubbed my toe. I had a few more things to say. Lord, I was not talking to you, but I had a few things to say. I make my way back to the reset button. I lean against it and get the thing off again. Finally, it goes off the third time. I go back and I hit that reset button. And I'm thinking, you know, I remember this happened about five years ago. Now I say, what did I do? So I looked at, I opened that box up and there were just wires everywhere. This is an old, old model. They hardly make these. Anymore. They don't make them anymore. They hardly have any anymore. Mine's an old model. And it's, by the way, it's not because I'm cheap. I'm a, I'm an antique alarm collector. And uh, it has wires everywhere. And I remember if you, if you pull them or do something to something, it, it, it'll cut the whole thing down, shut the whole thing off. So it has this old thing I've got has this big battery. It's a 16 volt battery sitting there, and I'm thinking, yeah, I pulled the terminals off that last time. So I went, bing, bing, pulled them off. Took my, and then all of a sudden, the whole system goes, and it starts blaring into the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah! you know, so I hit the reset button, and it it stopped. I thought, good. So I took my finger off the reset button. Hit the reset button again. So here I am. Now it's 1 o'clock. And the only thing between Alec Thompson, my backdoor neighbor, and a good night's sleep for Alec Thompson is my left thumb. In fact, my left thumb's never been so important to my neighborhood. And I'm holding this thing. But do I ask the Lord for help? Of course not. Allison! I need some help! So Allison stumbles out of bed and gives me the phone, which, of course, I can't go get because i got my left thumb on the reset button. So then I get the phone. I call the, I call the alarm company. And somebody answers. And he says, well, I don't understand those old models. I said, is there anyone in the corporation who does? Yes, sir. He's home. I said, would you please call him? Yes, sir. So he calls me, 1 o'clock in the morning. 
I got my thumb on the reset button. He tells me to get a screwdriver. <laughs> I don't ask the Lord for help. Allison, I need a screwdriver. And he tells me where the little wire is, and I unscrew it, pull the wire out, take my finger off the reset button. Peace and quiet. That's so nice. So I go back to my bed. And now I'm not in Twilight Zone anymore. I'm in one of these. And I think, well, how are you going to use your time? Always got to be efficient, you know. Well, this will be a good time to just go ahead and get through the prayer list. All right. So start praying. And I started thinking of some people. And uh, I thought of, of my friend who's in the hospital, addicted to drugs. I didn't ask Allison for any help. She couldn't do anything about it. So I just talked to the Lord about it. And then I thought of a friend of mine whose marriage is really, really in trouble. I didn't, have, I didn't tell Allison anything about it because she couldn't do anything about it. I just talked to her about it. thought of my son over in Iraq. I prayed for him last night. I didn't talk to Allison about it. She couldn't do anything about it. Now, you see, some people, they're prompted spiritually just in the middle of the night sometimes to pray. You know, uh, but that's not, that's not me, you know. I'm not that spiritually sensitive, but I've got some friends who told me, you know, that they were waked up in the middle of the night with no, no reason whatsoever and just prayed intensely for a friend. And then they found out two weeks later, you know, that the friend had been driving on a bridge and drove off and was floating down, you know, 500 feet above the water. Uh, and then it was headed for a hit to hit a ship. And then the angel moved the, the car and it skidded off the water and landed over on the road on the other side and they drove off. And. And, of course, they realized two weeks later that it was that exact moment that, that they were praying for their friend. And, and, you know, the angels picked up the car and moved around. And, and of course, pastors, you know, we, we're supposed to understand these things. And so we always say, yeah, the Lord's amazing, isn't it? And we go, that's never happened to me. You know, I never heard that. That's never happened to me. I have alarms go off to get me up. Uh, but, you see, the Lord has ways to draw us to himself. And it may be, you may be a blockhead like me and, sit there with your thumb on the reset button, you know, yelling at your wife. And then a little later, you get a little time to pray. Or you may be a very spiritually sensitive person who prays for people who just, unbeknownst to you, are driving off a bridge. And By the way, if you drive off a bridge and you're in the air, you're thinking, I need to have somebody pray for me. I wouldn't bother with me. I, this is probably not going to work because uh, it takes a long time for those antique systems to get the alarm to go off and for me to realize I'm supposed to pray for you. So it wouldn't work. Uh, you have to think of Rocky. You know, ask the Lord to have Rocky pray for you. Uh, but here we see, here's a guy who has a 12-year-old daughter who's dying. And it's not going to do him a whole lot of good to talk to anybody else. And I suppose he's thought of just about everything. This guy's a synagogue ruler, which is not a big deal, but, you know, in a community of maybe a couple hundred people, you have one guy who's supposed to turn out the lights and sweep the floor and be sure everything's taken care of at the church. And uh, be sure the liturgy set up and that kind of thing. So he, he was a religious person. He was he was a responsible person, uh, and he was a recognized person in the community. Uh, he was a respectable person. And Jesus has already been stirring up trouble. We've already seen it. People are opposed to him. The religious leaders are opposed to him. This kingdom of God thing that he's been talking about doesn't sound too politically correct. And nobody who's a community leader really wants to be identified with the kingdom of God movement uh, with this man, Jesus, the car- carpenter from Nazareth, who's kind of pretend wannabe rabbi. But his daughter's died. 
and, and it breaks through all the other stuff. And there may be reasons why, you know, you don't much want to go to church or you don't want to learn how to pray or, you know, you don't want to be a religious person. But how many of you here have daughters? Just raise your hand if you have a daughter. Okay. I don't need I say more. Uh, something touches that little girl. And she may be a big girl now. Looking at some of you, I think she probably is. Uh, <clears throat> but somebody touches that little girl. And uh, all of a sudden it cuts through all of your laziness, cuts through all your irreligious thoughts, cuts through all your atheism, cuts through all your lack of prayer, and you become a prayer, don't you? And that's exactly what happened to Jairus. Because God has his son on the earth who's going to display his power and who's going to use this man's weakness to bring him to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what that man needs and what that little girl needs. And so when things are happening to you that you don't particularly like and they're very inconvenient and, you know, you don't even get it for a while, what's happening to you. Uh, I can tell you one thing that's happening is that in your weakness, God is using your weakness to bring you to himself. And you usually build your life on your strengths. But you know what? Actually, actually, Christ is building your life through your weaknesses. I'm not saying that we exploit our weaknesses. I'm not saying this is a business model. I'm talking about spiritual development. And that this is the way the Lord does it. So you'll notice in the story, in Jairus' case, that our fear of death brings us to Jesus. Jairus fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. So Jairus, out of a fear of death in his own family, is drawn to Jesus. And every one of us, has death to face, every single person here. And I can't imagine anything more painful, more difficult in life than attending one of my own children's funerals. Some of you have done that. Some of you may have to do it. I hope you don't. I can't imagine anything more painful than that. This man wanted to be spared having to go to his 12-year-old's funeral. And it gets his attention, and he comes to Jesus. And I want you to note, Jesus went. Jesus went. Now, there's something interesting about this in terms of Jesus and who he is. Jesus is the Son of God. And if anyone were ever pure, it would be Jesus Christ. But there were certain things that made a person ritually impure, disqualified them for the temple. One was touching a dead body. And so what you want to do is if you're going to pray for the little girl and lay hands on her, as Jairus asked Jesus to do, you want to be sure she's alive. Because if she's dead, you become impure, unclean. But the man was asking Jesus to come and touch someone who was sick at the point of death. But Jesus goes. He's ready to go, ready to help. Secondly, you'll notice in verses 24b through 26 that our physical helplessness brings us to Jesus. And here's where we have the story of the woman. A large crowd followed and a woman was there. What was wrong with this woman? First of all, she had serious, long-term suffering. She had been bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal. Let me tell you something else about her. She was unclean. You can look in Leviticus chapter 15, and you'll find that issues of blood make a person unclean. So no one would touch her. This is the reason that she was so shy, did not make herself known to Jesus personally, and was terrified when she was found out. Because uncleanness can also be passed through the clothes. You'll see that in Leviticus 15 and 17. 
They, the clothes of an unclean person are not to be touched or they'll make you unclean. This woman was unclean. Her clothes were unclean. And she was touching the clothes of Jesus Christ, which would make him unclean. And so she kind of sneaks up behind him in this crowd, thinking that he won't even notice. But she believes that he has power. She doesn't know how he does it, but he has power. Maybe if she just touches his clean garment, her uncleanness will be taken care of. Because we see that she had suffered a very serious disease for a long time. She had been unclean for a long time. She had been disqualified from the court of the women in the temple for a long time. She had been an outcast for a long time. She had worried about her mortality for a long time. She had been set aside by her friends who didn't want to get the disease that she had for a long time. She had suffered greatly, and God had gotten her attention. And some of you have suffered greatly, and God is getting your attention. And the fact is that He often builds our lives through our weaknesses. So she had had a serious long-term disease. Secondly, technology was ineffective. I think that for those of you who are doctors, here's a good memory verse for you. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had, and was getting this, uh, instead of getting better, she grew worse. There's a good memory verse for you, doctors. Hey, look, I'm only teasing. Yeah. But here she had had the doctors, and it was completely ineffective. And... Uh, why was it ineffective? Well, let me read to you a couple of remedies that we find in the old writings of the rabbis for a disease like this. Number one, drink a goblet of wine containing a powder compounded from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. Or suddenly shock a person, like, I guess, boo or something like that. Or, thirdly, uh, carry the ash of an ostrich egg in a certain cloth. And it may make you well. Well, she had tried all these things, spent all of her money. None of these things were were working. And she had run out of options. She had become financially exhausted. She had spent all she had. She was now empty. No medical insurance. No family to back her up. She had no resources. She tried everything. Isn't that the way it is? Sometimes before you come to Jesus, you try everything else before you go to him. You know, I can have this alarm going off at night. Didn't, didn't talk to Jesus about it one time. Just hit the reset button, you know. And you go through all kinds of problems. It's amazing how far you can go with a problem. I've had several of you say to me, you know, it was weeks before I even thought, oh, yeah, I should pray. Oh, yeah, right, that's good. Yeah. And so we try everything else and exhaust ourselves. That's exactly what she had done. And she'd gotten worse. And you say, well, Lord didn't get my attention the first time. So, all right, let's go from the interior buzz to the alarm waking up the whole neighborhood. See if that helps. And that happens sometimes. Our condition only gets worse, and he gets our attention. He uses our weaknesses to bring us to himself. Gentlemen, what about you? Do you realize he's doing this with your weaknesses? You're trying to use your strengths in your business, in your profession. God's actually using your weaknesses in your spiritual life. Now, secondly, we're going to see as we turn to verse 27 and following that Jesus' power is displayed in our weaknesses. And this should be verses 27 through 43, by the way. Jesus' power is displayed in our weaknesses. Now, keep your finger there in Mark and turn with me for just a moment to 2 Corinthians, this great letter of the apostle that is wonderful for Christians who are engaged in ministry and suffer as a result of their ministries, like the Apostle Paul did. But this is page 1877, 1877, 
Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul is talking about how we are encouraged in the midst of discouraging circumstances. And he says in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Do you see this? The treasure is the gospel of Christ. The jar of clay is your body and yourself. And you have this treasure that you're being a custodian of, but the treasure is in a jar of clay. And someone even say it's a crack pot. And so why is it in there? So that God can show that uh, the all-surpassing power is from him through the treasure, not from the pot of clay. And he goes on to say, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body, that is the jar of clay, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And how is the life of Jesus most powerfully displayed in your body, in your life? It is when he is doing something through your weakness rather than your strength. Your strengths can be explained from natural causes. But when God is doing something through your weakness, it's clear that it's the Lord. Turn on over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and you find, for example, that the Apostle Paul had this affliction. We don't know exactly what it was, but he had prayed regularly to be delivered of it. It was, it was something that really was painful to him in some way. And uh, 2 Corinthians 12, this is 1887, page 1887. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, he says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations which he talks about, there was given me a thorn in my flesh. Now, what that was exactly, we don't know. We can only speculate. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, look at, this, look at the language there. A thorn in his flesh. You can imagine how painful that is. That's how he describes it. Just this continuing aching pain in his flesh. A messenger from Satan. Something that torments him regularly. Something you want to pray about. So he does. Three times. I pled with the Lord to take it away from me. The Apostle Paul is pleading with the Lord three times. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. So you say, Lord, no, I, I know, I know you got grace. I, I, I appreciate the grace. I got this thorn. <laughs> no, you didn't hear me the first time. My grace is sufficient to help you handle the thorn. So Paul finally gets it. And then look what he says. Therefore, uh, he says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. There you have it. God's power is perfected in your weakness. So Paul draws some conclusions. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So when Paul shipwrecks on the, on the island of Malta, it's a very painful, scary experience. But clearly the Lord, if you read the account in Acts 26, the Lord got him through it. It was clearly the Lord's angel that told him he was going to make it through. 
And when he got bit by a viper on the island of Malta and survived it, clearly the Lord had spared him. So Paul could say, I boast in my shipwrecks. I boast in my snake bites. I boast in my weaknesses because it's through those things that God has made his power known. Now, gentlemen, we're going from being drawn to the Lord through our weaknesses now to making our weaknesses the basis of our boast. That this is where the power of Christ comes in. So, yes, indeed, in the business community, we're not out there saying, you know, we had a problem with fraud 20 years ago. You know, that's not your first statement when you enter the, you know, the customer's office. But in your heart, you're saying, you know what? Through the tragedy of our own failure and all the repentance and, and all the things we had to go through, you know what? It was through that the Lord drew me to himself. So in your heart, you know where the real action is. Even though in the, in the, in the ways of the world, uh, you, you've got your initial benefit statement you're making to your customer. You, know? you don't share your weaknesses I suppose in business, but you do in your prayers and you do in your fellowship with your brothers. You know, you, you can say, I am an alcoholic by nature, but by the power of God, I'm not. I'm a son of God. I'm delivered. And he has delivered me because I tried everything doing it myself. And my wife tried everything and it didn't work. But the Lord delivered me and I am delivered from that. So I can boast in my weakness because I'm boasting in his strength at the same time. You see how this works. That's exactly what happens. Jesus' power is displayed in our weakness. Now, look in verses 27 through 29, and you'll see that Jesus heals us from incurable disease. She touched his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. So just as if you had touched her cloak, you would have become unclean, She touched his cloak and became clean. So instead of uncleanness being transmitted through through the cloaks, cleanness was transmitted to her. So Jesus was no longer touching an unclean person. He'd been touched by a cleansed person. Amazing power. And so she just inferred from what she had seen of Jesus, if I just touch his clothing, if I could just touch something, I will be healed. And he immediately healed her. Sometimes we say, well... Now we know Jesus can heal. Why doesn't he, why didn't he heal me? Why doesn't he heal my child? Why doesn't he heal my wife? Why doesn't he heal my friend? I've been praying for him for years. Why doesn't he heal him? Well, he will. Your prayers are going to be answered, just like, just like the woman's prayer is answered. If the person touches Christ, he'll be healed. Be patient. This was an intrusion of the end times In the present age, when Jesus came to us incarnate, he brought all the blessings of the kingdom of God physically now in his own body because he was here bodily. Jesus blesses us in the realm in which he is present. And when he is present with us physically, he immediately blesses in every way physically. Just as when people touched him then, you never see Jesus failing. He heals them. When he comes back, Physically, again, in our presence, we're in his physical presence. Then our physical bodies will not only be healed, they will be completely regenerated. Just like a soul is regenerated by the power of the Spirit, the body will be completely regenerated. This is the reason Paul says, the whole creation is groaning in travail, waiting for the day of the revelation of the sons of God, waiting for the day when the body is renewed, born again. The body is born again. That's what it is. Because we're in his presence physically. Now we're in his presence spiritually. And so we get the down payment, as Paul calls it. 
We get the earnest. We get the spiritual blessings. And we also see things breaking out in the physical realm. They can't help but break out. The stones would cry out if we didn't worship him. The, the whole creation is vibrating. It's, it's full of his presence, vibrating, waiting for the day when they can bust out and be renewed completely and have peace all around the world. And the entire cosmos will be calmed and be gloriously renewed. And it's, it's vibrating with, with anticipation waiting for that day. So you, you see healings break out. You see physical expressions of the presence of God break out. You can't help but see it break out. But he's not here yet physically. That's just because the, the creation is, is vibrating, waiting for him. So we experience infallibly all the blessings in the spiritual realms. But one day we'll experience infallibly all the physical blessings. And your prayers will be answered. And they count. Can you wait? Patience. Endurance. Anticipation, waiting for the coming of the Lord, these are all elements of the Christian life. That's what it means to be mature, deferred gratification. So make your prayers. And he may answer now, he may answer later. If he does answer now, you're still going to die. And you still need the answer to that ultimate prayer. And he will answer it. And you'll see one day there is a relationship between your prayers and what he does. That he does answer the prayers of his people completely and more than you even prayed. But we have to be patient. So that's the reason that the healings don't occur in the same way they did when Jesus was here in the flesh. is because he was here in the flesh. And he was, he was granting his blessings in the, in, in, the, in the physical body. And the people around him were blessed. It was an outbreak of eternity is what it was. When Jesus walked the dirty roads of this world, we had an outbreak of eternity along that whole path. You could just see eternity renewing things around him. And when he comes back, of course, it will be cosmic. Everything. So Jesus heals us from our incurable disease. He healed her and he'll one day heal us. And we continue to pray for that. Now, we have to ask ourselves a question. In verse uh, 29, uh, or look at verse 30, rather, you see that it says, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? Now, why did he do that? Okay, so we, in a way that we don't understand, Jesus felt healing power go out of him. That's very interesting. A woman comes up, doesn't present herself to him, just touches his garment, heals her, and Jesus can feel the spiritual power go. Very interesting. But why does he stop and say, who touched me? If it seems strange to us, it seems a lot stranger to the disciples who are saying, Jesus, this crowd is just pressing up against you. What do you mean who touched you? How about half the world touched you? It just seems like a ridiculous question. So to them it was ridiculous. To us it's mysterious. Why did he even want to know who, to whom this power went? Because surely he was blessing people right and left. There's an answer for it. Because Jesus was not only healing her of her disease, he was to save her from her sins. And this is the reason that he stopped, because Jesus saves us from our sin. Now, let's look at several aspects of this. First of all, it is personal. You can't just come to church and touch a crucifix or bow here or bow there or sing a hymn or put on a set of clothes and look like everybody else and experience what Christ has for you. 
You can't hang back in the back of the balcony and watch everybody else and say, I've had a spiritual experience. You can't have a wonderful godly grandmother and say, you know, I've got this wonderful legacy and be healed. And this woman could not touch his cloak without a conversation and be healed at the deepest level. And Jesus was not there just to give her physical blessings. Because she, she ended up dying later. It's not in the book, but we know this, right? There's, there's no woman over in Palestine who's told to be 2,000 years old. This woman died. So she dies later. Jesus wanted to deal with that issue. So you may be healed now, but you're not going to be healed later. And then later you can be healed. Jesus wanted to deal with that. So he stopped. And he said, who touched me? The disciples don't understand what in the world he's up to. They don't even know that she got healed. And half the time, we don't know half of what Jesus is doing in the church. It just goes on all around us. We're not even aware of it. But Jesus has a personal encounter, and that's what he's got to have with you. It's got to be more, frankly, than coming to Amen Bible study. It's got to be more than, than just associating yourself with good people. You've got to have a personal conversation with Jesus Christ where your needs are coming before Him, where you present your need to Him. He requires it. It is not an impersonal force that forgives our sins and gives us eternal life. It is a very personal being who engages with you. And this is what has to happen. If you have a friend that you're concerned about having spiritual life, they've got to have a personal encounter. It's not that they need to meet you. It's that through you they need to meet Him. So you've got to be sure that you get your friends connected. Jesus, the friend of all friends, and the friend of sinners, and ourselves and our sinful friends have to meet. That's exactly what's happening here. It's very personal. He wants to talk to her. He says, who touched me? And you find that eventually she comes. Uh, He looks around in verse 32 to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. That has to happen. You've got to come to him and tell him the whole truth. Tell him your whole problem. Tell him your whole need. And you'll get even better news. At first, you're embarrassed. You got what you wanted. You got the benefit you were hoping for from Christianity or from Jesus or from God or from some spiritual force. You got what you wanted, and you're going to slink off until things get bad again, and then you'll come back and get something else from him. He won't let you do that. He's far too interested in you. He got you there in the first place, not so that you could be healed, but so that you could meet him and have a deeper healing than you even imagined. You got there because you were having a strange disease and you thought, I tried everything else, got all the doctors, went to Mayo, couldn't fix it. Well, I'll just go to a prayer meeting. You got to the prayer meeting, got healed, you want to slink off. No, hang on just a minute. There's a personal relationship here. There's a deeper healing you need to know about called the healing of sin. And there's, there's a longer term that you need to be interested in. Not just now, but forever. Secondly, notice that it was done publicly. You want to do it privately? You want to have your own little relationship with Jesus? It's a little embarrassing to admit that you have a weakness. It's a little embarrassing to admit that you're a sinner. It's a little embarrassing to admit you can't help yourself. That you've got to have help on the outside. You'd like to have just a little personal encounter and leave it at that. No, Jesus demands that this whole encounter be done publicly. So she comes trembling at his feet before the entire crowd. She comes acknowledging 
that as an unclean woman who should have kept her distance from clean people, she didn't do that. She broke through all the social conventions, broke all the rules, risked the uncleanness of Jesus Christ in order to do this. And she has to come publicly and admit her need is so great that she's got to stink up everybody else even to get there to get help. She had to admit that. And then she had to admit that she had a disease that she couldn't get healed. And she had to admit that she had to put her life completely in the hands of Jesus Christ. And she had to admit it publicly. And that's exactly what happens. It is a private relationship. But it's not just private. It is private and it is public. And sometimes guys will use the excuse that they don't want to be so public about it because they don't want to look like a bunch of hypocrites like so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. Well, I agree. But frankly, gentlemen, your profession will always be higher than your performance. And you will always be humiliated, as it were, because you will always fall short of your own standards. And you will always publicly be in need of forgiveness. To be a Christian is always privately and publicly very humbling. And if you teach Sunday school, it's even more humbling. Try teaching Sunday school to young couples and talk to them about marriage. Right, Bill Thompson? Yeah. Is that not embarrassing? Bill's my brother-in-law, so I, you know, he knows that for me to teach on marriage is embarrassing, and I know about him, see? So you can't teach on anything that if the people knew your life, you wouldn't start off with a 15-minute confession before you talked about anything. Do you think that this is just because of you? No, it's everybody. You, anytime you run, if you want to live the Christian life, you're going to have to live it publicly. You're going to have to be set up to some standards you can't keep. And the only way you can keep your sanity and your relationship with Christ is through continual repentance. And sometimes it has to be public repentance because sometimes our sins are public. And that's the only way you can live. That's the way this woman had to live. First of all, it had to be a private, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And secondly, it had to be a public relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting, gentlemen, that those who go about doing their business think, well, you'll have no problem with me. I'm a Christian. I'm not talking about that. That is hypocrisy. That's manipulating and using your relationship with Christ to try to get a business deal. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when the rubber meets the road and when your standards are on the line, when people ask you who you are and when you have an opportunity to share. Obviously, it's a public relationship. And that's the reason the church is so important. It's public. Thirdly, the real key to it is here in verse 34, where he says to her, daughter, what a wonderful way to talk to her. This woman, my daughter, daughter, or daughter of Israel, daughter, he says, your faith has healed you. It is by faith, not by touch. It was the grasp of her faith, not the grasp of her hand. That it healed her. It was not the healing of disease, but it was the healing of the spiritual disease of sin. It was by faith, not by touch. It's so interesting, you know, uh, we can all quickly become superstitious and think, you know, well, I was converted at this spot. So if I really want to have a spiritual experience, I need to go back to that spot and just sit there. Or. you know, if I'll uh, go to this place or see this person or touch that clergyman or this healer or that movement. Or if I go to France, Lourdes, and, and, and go there, you know, get some holy water. If I go get baptized in the Jordan, 
That's the Protestant's favorite superstition. If I go get baptized in the Jordan, my life's going to be straightened out. Or if I could ever get my hands on the Shroud of Turin, if I could just touch it, then magical hocus-pocus spiritual vibrations would take place in my life. It's just amazing to me. Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, all religions, we just we get attached to superstitious things and ideas and places and, and liturgies. and It's Jesus. That's what he's saying. It's not my clothes, honey. It is I. You didn't just touch my clothes. You grasped me. It wasn't your hand touching something magically. It was your heart embracing me spiritually, really, coming in contact with me. So it's faith that heals. Not hocus-pocus not going to certain places in the world, not touching certain things, not going through certain motions, not going through certain liturgies, not doing it just the way somebody else did it. Folks, it's getting in touch with Jesus Christ. This is where the action is. And he stopped for that reason. Jairus, by the way, was in a real hurry. And he did not understand what was going on. Why is Jesus, when he knows that my 12-year-old girl is at the point of death, why is he turning around and asking who touched me? If anybody thought Jesus was crazy, if somebody was going crazy, it was Jairus who was tapping his foot and back and forth. His daughter is dying. But Jesus stops because he wants to be sure this woman understands it's her faith that healed her. That means, my daughter, if you keep believing and keep turning to me in every weakness, in every circumstance, in every part of your story, you'll find me there at every turn facing every situation with you and giving you the deepest healing in every part of the weaknesses of your life. It's also forever and not just now. He says your faith has healed you or the word there can be saved you or rescued you. It's the word for saving. Your faith has saved you. Saved you from what? From the destruction that is coming when an almighty and holy God returns to an unholy world to judge it. And where people will be crying out for the rocks to fall over them in an avalanche to protect them from the awesome power of his judgments. That's what this woman has been saved from. Not a flow of blood for 12 years, but a flow of the wrath of God on the cosmos. She's been saved. Not because she touched his cloak, but because she believed him and rested upon him alone for her salvation. She put her life on him. And she's trusting herself and all her positions and all her money and all her resources and all her charm or whatever else she had. She stopped trusting it and she began trusting him completely. And she will be saved from eternal wrath from Almighty God. That's good news. And then fifthly, you find that he says to her something very interesting. He says, go, it says go in peace. Literally, it says go into peace. So she goes into, not just from. She goes into something. What is, what is peace? Look at this with me for a moment. Shalom. Shalom is found 250 times in the Old Testament, and the Greek word arene is found 92 times in the New Testament, so it's a very important word. 250 times in the Old Testament. And as I looked up uh, shalom in the Old Testament, there are all kinds of forms of shalom. It's really beyond 250 times, but just strictly on shalom, it's 250 times. Big, big word. 
Now, in the New Testament, you'll find, first of all, that this peace is peace with God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So, since we've been justified, since we've been declared righteous, since he has welcomed us into his presence, and he has declared us acceptable in his sight, we have peace with God. So, we have peace with God. That is, His wrath is taken off of us because we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who bore His wrath in our place. Therefore, we have peace with God. We're no longer at enmity with Him. And gentlemen, when you're brought into this world by nature, you're brought into this world as an enemy. I'm sorry to tell you that, but that's exactly what the Bible says, that we were by objects, we were by nature objects of His wrath. That's our natural relationship with God. Objects of His wrath. And by the blood of Jesus Christ, that wrath is taken away from us because it was poured out on Jesus Christ. And we have peace with God. Peace in your life starts with reconciling this relationship and removing His wrath from off your head. And when you're in Christ, you are assured His wrath is off your head. We have peace with God. That's shalom. That's where it starts. Secondly, we have the peace of God. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 4. He says, but, but the peace of God which transcends all human understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So regardless of what happens to you, you just take it to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving and supplication. Just take it to Him. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding and transcends all circumstances, will guard you. So you have peace with God, and then you have the peace of God in your heart that enables you to transcend any human circumstance because you have tranquility. You have the peace of God in your heart. It's an experience. It's, a, it's an object of reality in your relationship with God. That's the peace with God. And then it's a subject of experience, the peace of God. Thirdly, you have peace with your brothers. If you have peace with God, if this, re- uh, this relationship is reconciled, Paul says in Ephesians 2, you'll be reconciled this way because the same blood of Jesus Christ that took off the curse of the law from you is the same blood that makes you one with your brothers and destroys the wall of hostility between brothers, even Jew and Gentile. There's no barrier. Any racial, ethnic, national, linguistic barrier, socioeconomic barrier that can separate the brothers in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. In fact, that's one of the key expressions of the gospel is when it's demonstrated in our lives that the blood of Jesus Christ has united us and given us peace. We need peace, don't we? And I'm telling you, the only way to get it is through Christ. Jesus says, my peace I give you, not the peace of this world. They're in contrast. Henry Kissinger can give you the peace of this world. Jesus Christ is the only one who can give you the peace that endures and binds brothers' hearts together. Only in Christ. There's no other answer in all the world. Only in Christ do you find peace. This is a cosmic reality. It's not just one among many great religions. It's the only way for the world to be renewed in their relationships. The only way. Ephesians 2, you see it described. And thirdly, the peace of God is peace with this world. You get it, for example, in Isaiah 11, that famous Advent passage where the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the child will crawl over the hole of the asp, the cobra. So the whole cosmos will be in peace with itself. This is the shalom that the Old Testament was talking about. May God give you shalom. 
where everything's at peace, where you are in complete well-being. And that's what Jesus was saying to this woman. You've not just had your disease healed. You've had your sins forgiven. You've been given eternal life. Enter into the kingdom of peace. All these things are a reality in her life. And that's what Jesus is offering us when we understand that our weaknesses are for the purpose of displaying His power. Now, lastly, Jesus raises us from the dead. He not only heals our diseases and He saves us from our sin, but He heals us from death itself. Gentlemen, look at this power of Christ. He's already taken over 6,000 demons. Now He's going to take over your body and when it dies. This is beyond human understanding. How do you take a body that's decaying where the cells are not working anymore. I mean, those of you who study the body for a life, tell me, how does this happen? We don't know. It's beyond human understanding and beyond human technology. We do not understand how this happens, but God will take a dead body and give it life. And that's exactly what He does to this little girl. Everybody laughs at Him. We see, number one, that our circumstances stink. Everybody's crying. All the, all the, you know, the man comes to Him, your daughter's dead, forget it. No use even trying. Don't bother the Savior anymore. She's dead. We've reached the extent of what the Savior can do for her. If she'd been alive, He could have put His hand on her and helped her, prayed for her and healed her. We've seen Him do that before. But don't bother Jesus anymore. She's dead. That's what you think when you get to this point. Well, it's all over when I die. Secondly, Jesus commands a specific response in the midst of great trial. Don't fear and do believe. Don't fear. Yeah, right, Jesus. Don't fear. I'm dying, pal. What do you mean don't fear? Because you're supposed to know. That Jesus Christ is more powerful than death. So he can legitimately look at you while you're dying and say, don't fear. It's a commandment. It's not an option. It's not one psychological technique that's a little better than another one. It's a commandment. Don't fear death. Because Jesus Christ is more powerful than death. And you say, well, we'll see. And he says, you're right, we will see. He says, you believe in me. Very few believe. They laugh at it. One of the lowest points in the New Testament. These people would come to mourn. And the professional mourners would come, even in a poor family. But this wasn't a poor family. But they would come, play their flute, mourn, and kind of help the family express their mourning. And you can see how superficial it is. The minute that Jesus says, oh, she's just sleeping, they start laughing and scorning him. Most people don't believe. They think you're nuts for not being afraid. You should be afraid of death, they say. And fourthly, Jesus raises her up to leave the coon. So what? Jesus is more powerful than the worst thing you ever feared. His range of power does go beyond the boundary that you had set for him. You thought Jesus could help you with a few things. You didn't really think he could handle the ultimate thing. And he does. And they're all astonished. And then he tells them at the very end in verse 43, with strict orders not to let anybody know about this. Why? Because he has a greater work yet to perform. You think he's healed his disease now. You think he's He's given this woman eternal life. You, you, you think that he's raised this little girl from the dead. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ is orchestrating all of history at this moment so that he gets to the cross of Calvary. He does not want to be uh, diverted by having anybody find out about him and arrest him and take him off to the side. He's headed straight for Jerusalem. He's going to die on that cross. Let me tell you what that cross is going to provide for you. It's going to provide for you a new body. And all your prayers for your healing are going to be heard and answered because Jesus Christ went to Calvary and by His stripes you were healed. He went to that cross of Calvary because on Calvary's cross He paid a price, an objective price. And the price was made because it was owed. And it was owed because you and I sinned. 
And Jesus Christ made the complete payment for it at Calvary, removing all of your sin from you and all of its future payment. He did that at Calvary. And thirdly, he went to Calvary because he defeated the evil one who had a grip on your neck and was getting ready to destroy you and send you into the lower regions for eternity. He had a grip on you to give you death, not just in one experience, but for eternity. That's what Satan was planning to do to you. And Jesus Christ went to Calvary, and there he defeated the evil one and destroyed all the powers and authorities and put them up to public spectacle and made you an eternal being who will be raised gloriously to everlasting life, just as he was three days out of the tomb. That's what he did at Calvary, and he was determined to do it. And that's the reason for that last verse. Because what happened to the woman and what happened to Jairus and his little girl was just a little picture of what Jesus is all about. He is using all of his enormous power for your good and mine. That's the story. All this power of Jesus Christ is focused to win for us healing and forgiveness and eternal life and a resurrection one day. I'll see you there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of Jesus Christ exercised on our behalf. We thank you that you have sent your son in the incarnation, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, to live a perfect life and to die an ugly death. We thank you that you gave your son, Jesus, that determination to go to Calvary. So that these two episodes are just little expressions of the big event that was to happen on that ugly Good Friday and that beautiful Sunday morning. So God, help us now to go our way knowing that our prayers are being heard, that it personally you are hearing us, that you care for us, that you're taking all of our weaknesses and using them to display your power that one day will be beyond amazement, beyond words, beyond astonishment, because then you will be Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and we will have shalom. We pray these things in Jesus' name.